Every single thing we wear, eat, and use impacts real people and shapes our world. Behind all of it, there is a story, one you might not always expect to hear. From Fair World Project, I'm Dana Geffner, and you're listening to For a Better World, where we unpack the systems, pathways, and labor conflicts that underpin everything around us. ingredients you expect to see in a chocolate bar are cocoa and sugar. Today we're going to talk about another ingredient that you may not crave in your chocolate but is often included, palm oil. We began this series talking about Nestle and their UK Kit Kat bar, how it was fair trade certified, and then how Nestle dropped that certification. We've been working our way through the ingredients in that bar and hearing the stories and struggles of the people whose lives those ingredients impact. Last episode, Ryan and Anna got two really different perspectives on sugar. They spoke to Karen Mapasua about the long, dark history of cane sugar cultivation on the Pacific island of Fiji, and the impact of Nestle no longer buying from Fijian farmers. We also heard from Andres Gonzalez of Manduvira, a farmer-owned sugar cooperative in Paraguay. They are changing the sugar industry with a farmer-owned sugar processing plant and a thriving web of fair trade relationships. It's inspiring to me to hear from the people building these alternatives. Imagine if more small-scale farmers were processing more of their own crops. That would mean they would keep more of the price of the finished product in their own communities. And it would be those farmer-owned institutions who would be calling the shots, not some distant multinational corporation. And today, we're going to hear another striking contrast. In this episode, Anna is going to talk to two guests who reveal very different realities about palm oil, one fueled by the destructive corporate food system and another possibility where small-scale farmers are actively regenerating the land. Hi, it's Anna. So here's the thing about palm oil. It's in a staggering number of the packaged foods we eat. It's in chocolate bars, chips, cookies. It's in soap. It's in makeup. It's in instant ramen noodles. Start going through your cupboard. It's everywhere. As I was doing the research for this episode, I had a little realization as I looked at my search engine bar. For every item I searched, there was this other list of marketing results that I could buy. All those processed foods that I just mentioned, and then the palm oil free version of each of those products. And that's the thing about this industrial food system. It's very quick to take a crop, say oil palm, and strip it of its origins, mass produce it, exploit everything in sight, and then vilify it. And then, often those very same companies are all too ready to sell you that palm oil free version of the thing too. That's capitalism for you. I'm old enough to remember when trans fats became the bad thing in the early 2000s. Small amounts of trans fat exist naturally in the fats in meat or milk. But most trans fats used in packaged foods were added by the manufacturers and made out of ultra-processed oils. They showed up in the fine print ingredients as partially hydrogenated oils. Big food companies relied on these ingredients to give their packaged foods the right texture and keep them shelf-stable for an impossibly long time. Then, starting in the 90s, research started to show just how bad these artificially processed trans fats are for our health. Trans fat bans and labeling requirements forced food companies to reformulate. 
And voila, they came to our next ingredient, palm oil. But palm oil isn't a recent invention. It's a traditional staple food in West Africa. And like most traditional staples, people have grown it for a really long time without destroying forests, endangering wildlife, or leaving a massive carbon footprint. It's not that palm oil is inherently destructive. It's that big food companies, in their quest to make more and cheaper versions of everything, are exploitative and destructive. In this episode, we're going to talk to Safianu Moro, who works alongside small-scale farmers in Ghana who are growing oil palm in a way that actively regenerates the land. But first, I'm joined by Robin Averbach of Rainforest Action Network to talk about that destructive food system and the role that Nestle plays in it. Hi, my name is Robin Averbeck. I am the Forest Program Director for Rainforest Action Network. And Rainforest Action Network is an organization that is based in the U.S., but we're a global organization. We've been around for 35 years and campaigning to protect the world's forests, um, stand up for human rights, and fight global climate change. We do that through strategic campaigns and partnerships with frontline communities. How did you personally get started working on issues around palm oil? I have been, you know, working on and thinking about environmental issues specifically since high school. Um, when I was in high school, I was like the president of my environmental club and uh, went to college with the intention to uh, study environmental policy and, and work on that. Um when I was a young activist, I really thought of uh, the environment, and I was also keen on animal rights activism. Uh, I was a young vegan, but um, I really got into that work um, partly because I thought, well, human rights um, is really important, but humans also can speak for themselves. Well, now that I've grown up and learned much more about these issues, I understand that you know human rights and environmental issues are very much interlinked, and so have been working at the intersection of those issues um, for the past ten years and in earnest. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to come to Rainforest Action Network, because we really see the interlinkage of human rights and environmental destruction, um, knowing that, in fact, um, often before we see things like deforestation, we see that um, communities are having their land stolen from them. Um, and then the deforestation happens. Um, and then after that, um, communities are often not even offered the jobs that come of those industries. It's often um, migrant workers in the case of the palm oil industry that are brought in um, and often facing really terrible working conditions in many cases that can even be forced labor, modern day slavery. Not only is the treatment of people and the land on which they live connected, Robin points out that even though the devastation caused by palm oil plantations is out of sight for those of us in the U.S., it still impacts us all. Working to protect and, and, and stand with communities who are defending their lands um, is really critical to uh, addressing and ending deforestation and climate change, which we're, we all are experiencing the impacts of. I myself am sitting here in San Francisco right now. Um, which uh, at this time and place, we've, we 
I'm literally um, not supposed to be walking outside because of forest fires uh, that are happening, which are uh, a result of climate change. And so, you know, this issue is really personal for all of us um, everywhere, I think. Um, and that has really uh, hit home for myself and, and for many people who don't think about and work on climate change every day uh, over this past month where we've been facing these uh, super storms on the East Coast and um, forest fires and smoke and impacts um, on the West Coast. Palm oil itself is not bad. The oil palm tree is a species native to Africa and other humid tropical places. It's the industrial palm oil production methods that are harmful and are a major contributor to global warming. Remember when big food companies rushed to switch from trans fats to palm oil and packaged food? Well, that meant that suddenly oil palm plantations were a booming industry. Palm oil in, is not inherently bad in any way. Palm oil can be produced responsibly. Um, but unfortunately, what we've seen, what we call conflict palm oil, is produced you know, with the destruction of forests, uh, with the draining of peatlands, and with the abuse of human rights, both local communities, indigenous peoples, and workers. And so I think what we have seen is a drive towards uh, further opening up of conflict palm oil practices and company operations. And so that is why we've seen this acceleration towards um, more deforestation. As I mentioned earlier, palm oil is one of the leading global drivers of deforestation. Indonesia and Malaysia are two of the key producers of palm oil. The expansion of palm oil plantations there made Indonesia the fourth largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world in 2015. They've since been overtaken by other countries, but the emissions of those climate crisis-inducing gases continue. Palm oil plantations are expanding into tropical forests and peatlands across Indonesia. Tropical peatlands are wet and swampy. Their saturated soil can hold up to 20 times more carbon than ordinary dirt, an amazing carbon sink. But as they are drained to make room for palm oil plantations, these once soggy peatlands dry out and burn. And instead of absorbing carbon down from the atmosphere, these burning peatlands release the carbon that they've been storing, further spurring climate change. Likewise, logging transforms tropical forests from climate solutions into sources of greenhouse gas emissions. When we talk about the impacts of land use changes on the climate, this is what's being talked about. That change from wet, swampy carbon storehouse to fiery greenhouse gas emitter. This isn't a natural process. There are people making the decisions to do this. So, um, you know, there are major, major players in the palm oil industry um, in both Indonesia and Malaysia, also globally, um, expanding into Latin America and, and, and Africa. So what we see is that, you know, companies on the ground are driving these impacts. But beyond that, um, of course, why are they doing that? Well, they're selling the palm oil to uh, companies that want it. And in this case, that's many of the well-known brands, products consumers all across the world use every day. Um, so the likes of Nestle, um, major companies like Mondelez, uh, Colgate Palmolive, Procter & Gamble. Uh, these are just a few of the major consumer brands who are purchasing palm oil um, and fueling you know, 
these abuses, whether it be human rights abuses or deforestation and, and climate emissions. In addition to that, there's also the world's largest banks and financiers are also key players in this. They provide the funding to these companies uh, to open up and expand in new areas and, and perpetuate uh, these problematic practices uh, that are resulting in, in human rights abuses, deforestation, and climate emissions. Palm oil is a big business. It's appealing as an ingredient because once processed, it's got a long shelf life before it gets rancid. It's stable at pretty high temperatures, which is important if you don't want melty chocolate. And it's cheap, but that low price comes at a high cost. Because of some of these conditions I've described, where palm oil is often uh, being produced in a way that is not paying for the goods uh, that is required, i.e. not paying for uh, the forests uh, that are being deforested, not paying properly their workforce, um, and not paying the communities whose lands they've taken. Um, so it's cheap. All that to say it's cheap. And palm oil um, is also very uh, appealing as a substitute because of its low price. The palm oil itself isn't the only moneymaker. Not only are these companies exploiting the land and the people involved, but they are also cashing in on cutting down the trees to set up the plantations. A lot of these palm oil companies are integrated conglomerates. So they are not just palm oil companies. A lot of them have associated pulp and paper operations. Um, and there's also a high value on having uh, selling timber that would come from a cleared rainforest. And so within the context of Indonesia, which is where we work um, most frequently and most deeply, um, what we see is that companies are being, palm oil companies are being handed permits. Um, but it's not just the value of growing the palm oil once it's there. There's additional value for clearing the rainforest and selling that off or feeding it into um, pulp mills that may or may not be associated with their uh, conglomerate. This piece of information broke me just a little when I was talking to Robin. It's not just that there's money to be made selling palm oil because of the way that all the human and environmental costs have been passed off. These same companies are also cashing in on the actual destruction of the rainforest as well. There's little incentive to stop clearing forests because it's profitable, in the short term at least. In the medium to long term, well, it's clear that we are already paying the price of cutting down these trees. So palm oil production is connected to both environmental disasters and human rights violations of communities around the world. But where is Nestle in all this? Turns out they've been there since the start. Nestle was an early target of a Greenpeace campaign. So one of the earliest campaigns that was run on palm oil in 2010 was run on Nestle. Um, there's a very famous video that went viral where uh, someone opened up a Kit Kat bar and bit into an orangutan finger. The video parodies a Nestle ad from the time. Picture a dull office scene. A guy in a white shirt feeds paper after paper into a shredder until the familiar slogan shows on the screen. Have a break? The camera cuts to the guy's hands holding a Nestle Kit Kat bar. Fair trade seal and all over his keyboard. He peels back the label, obliviously smiling at his boss who's walking by. We and all his coworkers watch as he breaks off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. 
and it's a hairy orangutan finger in the chocolate coating. A drop of blood pools on the white keyboard. Blood drips down from his mouth. The guy still doesn't notice what's going on as he wipes his mouth with the back of his hand, smearing blood across his chin. It was very, you know, explosive, classic Greenpeace-style video. Got a lot of attention. Then the screen cuts to white letters on a red background. Give the orangutan a break as the sound of a chainsaw kicks in. The camera pans from a mother and baby orangutan in a tree to a bleak logged landscape. Text flashes across the screen that reads, Stop Nestle buying palm oil from companies that destroy the rainforests. Nestle tried to shut it down and actually asked YouTube to remove the video and that went uh, viral and of course brought them a lot of bad press. Remember back in the first episode? When we talked about campaigners who called Nestle out as baby killers over their formula debacle, this reminds me of that a little bit. If you don't like the criticism, just shut it down. But corporate PR has gotten way more savvy since the 70s. Instead of just trying to shut down Greenpeace, Nestle tried to greenwash the situation. So out of that, Nestle became an early mover to adopt on paper a commitment to no deforestation in their palm oil supply. However, since then, you know, Nestle has continued to try and position itself as a leader in the pack, but has failed to deliver on its promises. So over the past decade, since that early commitment in 2010, uh, they still have failed to show that they are delivering on promises of no deforestation in addition to their other commitments around Uh, no expansion on peeling, and no human rights abuses in their palm oil supply chain. So back to Nestle's commitments that you were talking about, they made a a commitment to go deforestation free. You know, I was looking at their website on that the other day, and I think they have a public commitment to be 100% responsibly sourced palm oil by 2020. We're sitting in 2020 now. (laughs) Um, Before I even ask if that's actually happening, what does that claim mean? Well, that's a good question because uh, it's something that we have certainly our own definition for what does responsibly sourced mean. Um, And I think on the most basic level for RAN um, and for our allies, responsibly sourced needs to mean that the company has independently verified that they are meeting the principles of their policy. So that includes no deforestation, no expansion on peatland, uh, no human rights abuses, no no F, uh, respect for FPIC, no land grabbing, uh, respect for labor rights. Can you define FPIC for folks who aren't familiar with that term? Sorry, yes. FPIC means the free prior and informed consent. And essentially what that means in in simple terms is that um, communities, whether it's indigenous peoples or local communities who have uh, rights to lands, uh, have the ability to say yes or no to whether something, uh, palm oil plantation or any other operation would move forward on on their lands. Um, and the way that things typically happen is that uh, communities are not actually given the proper uh, process or ability or right to say no. They are often 
coerced, manipulated, um, threatened, bribed, etc., into saying yes, um, and are offered very little alternative. And so this is what we see. We see a continual stealing of communities' lands, uh, which then results in further opening up of forests. But back to your original question of responsibly source, what does this mean? So I said what it means to RAN is that it has to be credibly verified that it's met all of these principles that the company says it will. But what it means to Nestle and the way that they've undertaken this uh, approach to responsible sourcing is that they work with second party consultants who they hire and pay directly to say that they have met their policy. Not to get too far into the weeds here, but this distinction that Robin's making is useful when you hear a company making a lot of claims about their practices. At Fair World Project, when we talk about certifications, we're talking about third-party certifications. That means that the company didn't write the standards and that there's a separation there to keep businesses from influencing the certifiers doing the inspections. That extra layer between who cuts the check and who checks off that you're doing a good job, that's important if you want to eliminate conflicts of interest. There's a lot of things that are pretty concerning about that. One is that you know, the company is saying, trust us, they're, they're paying a second party and relying on what they say to say this is now responsibly sourced. They're not making that public. So they don't make public what these assessments are. And uh, they're not open to outside parties, whether they're consumers or watchdogs like RAN, to say, is this really adding up? Quick rewind back to the first episode again. Remember when Frank and Fortin were talking about Nestle's cocoa plan? That standard that Nestle claims focuses on better farming and making all things better? Yeah, those standards are also written by Nestle. And they aren't making those public either. And they also don't involve all of the elements of what they've committed to. So they're really looking much more heavily on deforestation in particular, and often ignoring or sidestepping their commitments on human rights. Robin is laying out what is, at this point, a pretty common corporate playbook. Get called out for atrocities in your supply chain. Make a giant, much-publicized pledge to fix the problem. Then start redefining the problem and writing and rewriting the goals. Then pay someone to say that, yes, you are, in fact, 70% of the way to fixing that problem. What Robin's saying about palm oil is pretty similar to what Nestle has done on deforestation and child labor in their cocoa supply chains. And amid all this redefining of goals and shifting timelines, what does it even mean when Nestle makes a claim about something being responsibly sourced? We really can't say because it's not transparent. So I think that in order to be able to really say, is Nestle meeting the goals, we need full transparency on what they're doing. So they need to disclose what it is that they're calling responsibly sourced and the assessments that are backing that up. I think one other issue that's at play for us is, you know, it's really important that these companies are making sure that they enforce these standards, not only in their direct supply chain, but to the companies that they're buying from across the board. And one of the reasons for that is that it it actually takes three years from the time of uh, starting a palm oil plantation. So you would, you know, in the case of there being forests there, 
come in, cut the forests and plant palm oil. And then three, three years later, you would have palm oil fruit that you would sell to market. So that palm oil, you know, the impacts of deforestation, the potential stealing of communities' lands, that has already taken place three years earlier. So Nestle, if they start buying that and say, well, it's deforestation free um, because it took place earlier, well, that's simply unacceptable. We need them to also be fulfilling those pledges more broadly. So it has to be that that company is not carrying out deforestation at any point um, prior or across their operations. This lack of transparency is a theme throughout our KitKat conversations. Nestle's long, convoluted supply chains let them point the finger elsewhere when the exploitation that's baked into their model is revealed. The system is designed that way. And this extra bit about timing? Once again, Nestle resets the finish line and the starting line too, redefining what counts as quote-unquote ethical and quote-unquote responsible. I think it's pretty clear by now that the corporate MO is to keep shifting the definitions for all of us, keep redefining and rebranding in hopes that we, the people reading their labels, might get confused or distracted by their latest initiative. Nestle's not the only guilty party here, by the way. You'll see this across corporate social responsibility programs. But outside of all this, what would it look like to have a truly fair and sustainable palm oil trade? Yeah, I think that we see that uh, fair and sustainable palm oil uh, would be one where at the outset, communities' rights would be respected. Um, so at the point of uh, palm oil permit being allocated, communities would truly have the right to say, yes or no, we want this to, to proceed on our land. And, and it would be subject to a proper negotiation with that community about the extent, where it would go, etc. In addition to that, the forest areas and peatlands, the critical ecosystems would be mapped and protected. Um, and this would also be done in negotiation and agreement with the community. And, you know, following from that, then, you know, the production and, and the way that the palm oil was harvested would be done in such a way Ideally, that communities, if they said yes and wanted those jobs, then they would also be preferentially offered them. And any other workers who came to work on the plantation or farm would, of course, have their full rights respected and upheld. And ideally, you know, also be able to negotiate those freely um, through independent unions and collective bargaining. So there's no reason that that can't exist. Actually, there probably is a reason that it doesn't exist. The status quo is cheaper for Nestle, and it doesn't require that they give up even the least bit of power. But Robin's point stands. There's no reason that shouldn't exist. And then at the company level, all of the brands and buyers at every level of the supply chain should have full traceability and transparency around their supply chain. So they should know exactly where it's coming from. They need to know the farms and plantations, where it's being harvested, and then, of course, check. Um, do proper independent verification to say, yes, we know this is meeting our standards, and we have proof and we have evidence from independent and credible sources, not 
consultants that we pay. And there would be transparency around that. So both transparency of what plantations are you sourcing from and transparency on the verification that it is meeting these standards. We think that this is completely possible. It is a shift from the way the industry is currently operating, but there's no reason that it can't become the norm. And how is Rainforest Action Network working towards making that the norm? Well, we're we're working in a lot of different ways, but I think the most significant one is that we've just launched a new campaign this year uh, called Keep Forest Standing, and we're targeting some of the world's biggest brands and banks, including Nestle, and calling on them to uh, keep forest standing and respect the rights of communities. So uh, for many of them, that means really delivering on the pledges that they've already made. Um, As I mentioned, it's been 10 years since Nestle made their own. Um, Many other companies have made similar pledges. Um, So we are mobilizing uh, consumers, citizens around the world, Um, to stand in solidarity with communities who are fighting to protect their lands and fighting to keep their forests standing. Um, And we will continue in that endeavor um, over the next years and and really uh, hope that folks can join us in that. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a way that our listeners can get involved. If folks are listening and want to uh, get involved in that, how can they do that? Yeah, um, I think probably the easiest way is to find us uh, on the web. You can go to rand.org or you can visit us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Sign up for our lists and sign up to be an activist in our campaigns. We would love to have you and the world's forests definitely need you as well. So in just a few decades, Nestle and their big food buddies swapped out unhealthy trans fats for palm oil. At this point, something like 50% of packaged goods contain palm oil. It's in baked goods, in makeup, and fuel for cars and trucks in Europe. It is everywhere. The push for a cheaper ingredient is driving the destruction of the homes of thousands of people. It's also pushing us all closer to an uninhabitable planet. But it's not the palm oil itself that's to blame. The blame lies with the big food companies in the unchecked capitalism that happily sells us both destructive packaged foods and whatever their latest quote-unquote ethical option might be, however it is they're defining ethical at that particular moment. But industrial palm oil isn't the full story. For our next segment, we go to Ghana in West Africa, where palm oil is much more than a cheap filler ingredient. Palm is is so, it's, it's, it's a special crop. I say special because you you hardly throw any part of it away. Every part of the oil palm tree, it's it's very useful, and that's in itself is very unique. So I actually had so much love for it. So it's it's a special crop, and it's very common in our area. It's it's something that virtually gives farmers regular income. So on. When you are part of a project that is even organic and fair trade, that makes it even more special because you are contributing directly to taking people out of poverty and then also improving their livelihoods. That's Safianu Moro. I'm managing director of Serendi Palm Company Limited in Ghana. Serendi Palm is doing something that's completely the opposite of what we just heard about. 
Instead of destroying forests, Serenda Palm's farmer members are growing new ones. Safianu sets the stage, describing what this kind of palm oil production looks like. Yeah, so for a hectare of an oil palm field of a Serendi Palm member farmer, walking through such a field, it's, it's largely green all over. Whether you watch down or upwards, you know, oil palm fields, the palm fronts are largely green in, in our fields largely because of uh, the organic matter that is incorporated into the soil and there's vegetation cover on the soil so anytime farmers harvest they leave the palm fronts in the field in different sections of the field so that they can decompose and add organic matter to the soil you know synthetic fertilizers or chemicals are not allowed to be uh, applied on the fields and then there's no burning bush burning so you can't just gather some uh, dry fronts and then try to plant uh, to burn it's not allowed in an organic oil palm field so largely all over the field it's it's mostly green and so those those are things you would easily see when you walk into oil palm field belonging to a serendi farm member farmers this lush green farm is what Safianu calls dynamic agroforestry. Agroforestry is literally combining farming and forests, interplanting a diverse mix of oil palm trees and other crops in ways that mimic a natural forest canopy. This dynamic agroforestry that Safianu is talking about is one piece of a whole system that members of Serenda Palm are building. Serenda Palm Company Limited produces organic and fair trade crude palm oil for exports, largely into the United States and then also to uh, customers in Germany. And in the United States, it's, you know, Dr. Bronis, whom we sell to. Serenda Palm works with 781 small-scale farmers. That's farmers who have something like two and a half to 10 acres of land. And that lush green landscape that he told us about that's a key part of their work to support small-scale farmers. We also provide other training to them in the area of dynamic agroforestry to try and help farmers move away from just planting oil palm uh, in a monoculture manner to uh, mixing with several other tree species such as cocoa, mangoes, you know, avocados, citrus, uh, plantains, bananas, cassava, several other crops, all on the same plot. So that is our current direction. Currently, we also started regenerative. So we we're one of the projects that was, you know, selected for the pilot stage of the regenerative, regenerative organic certification. Regenerative organic certification is a new label that just launched this summer. It adds on to regular organic rules about not using synthetic pesticides and fertilizers with standards for social fairness, animal welfare, and soil health. The goal? A holistic approach to growing crops that is good for people and the planet, not just redefining sustainable like so many of the big food initiatives we were talking about earlier. In addition to that, there are several support systems we provide to smallholder farmers, including distributing oil palm seedlings to all of them on interest-free loans so that they can expand their fields. We also provide interest-free loans to farmers for farm maintenance. 
as part of our fair trade responsibilities. Then dynamic agroforestry and pruning trainings have been organized for them, also for free. These programs to plant and keep the trees healthy are one part of Surrender Palm's work. Training farmers and tending trees are part of a broader commitment to community development. The money for this work comes from fair trade premium funds. The fair trade premium fund is an additional sum on top of the fair trade purchase price and on top of the organic premium that's paid to the farmer organization to fund community projects. In this case, it works out to about 10% of what's paid to the farmer, the so-called farm gate price. Farmers who work with Surrender Palm elect representatives from amongst themselves. Those representatives sit on a fair trade committee and decide how best to spend that premium money. Some of the projects they've invested in include water and sanitation facilities for the community, school supplies for children, and medical facilities. And then there are also projects that focus on building up these food forests by distributing seedlings and coordinating trainings. It all comes back to this vision of a dynamic agroforestry system that Safianu explains. The farmers aren't just growing oil palm. Some, some of them also had other fields such as cocoa fields which is also monocrop or citrus alone but our idea has been to try and get biodiversity in the field so how do we get farmers to bring all these crops together on the same land and mimic the natural forest you know and that that is exactly what we are we are doing with them in the area of dynamic agroforestry and it's, it's working really well this dynamic agroforestry Safiano describes is backed by researchers as a climate solution. Instead of fueling climate change, this way of planting palm helps to build healthy forests. And not only are those forests good for our planet and all of us who live here, it allows farmers to actually make more money out of their fields, make good use of their lands, and then protect themselves whilst cropping and then also protecting the land itself. Ultimately, it actually more than doubles what the, the income you would get from just planting oil palm alone or cocoa alone. The yield from the oil palm field would reduce, but you have yield from cocoa, you have yield from mango, citrus, avocado, and several other crops. So in the end, you know, when you aggregate those, you, the farmer makes more money than if he had just oil palm alone. I ask Safianu what the farmers he works with do with this amazing diversity of crops. There's actually local market for, for those crops. Uh, farmers consume some and then sell some into areas in Accra. That's the capital city of Ghana. We, we actually, uh, we, there's, there's actually market for lots of those crops locally. And we are working on those that we can also export to get some premium for, for farmers. While we hear a lot about palm oil causing deforestation around the globe, that's not what's currently happening in Ghana. In the regions where Surrender Palm is based, much of the tree cutting happened several generations ago. In this area, the contrast is between monocrop plantations and these diverse food farms that mimic natural forests. I'm going to let Safianu describe the contrast for you because it has one of my favorite new facts. We start in a conventional palm oil plantation. Yeah, you wouldn't want to walk in a field like that after walking in a Serendi Palm uh, farmer members. Herbicides and uh, synthetic pesticides on this, the, the land over the years, they look 
very dry, sometimes no vegetation cover at all. And because of burning, you hardly find any, any animals like those millipedes, centipedes on, on such land. So you would find snails in a Serendipa member farm and sometimes even crabs create holes and then stay in there because you know they come out and then get back into those holes but for a conventional farm you know that is very dry you hardly find such uh wildlife on on, on them crabs are a common part did i hear you correctly that crabs are common on an organic palm plantation yeah, there are there are around in those wet wetlands. So we have some fields that are swampy in nature, and you would find them there in our organic fields. I had no idea. I didn't know that it would be that there are crabs in organic palm oil fields. Now I just have a picture of little crabs like waddling around in palm oil uh, plantations. I love it. As Safiano describes it, the members of Surrender Palm have a very different approach to farming from the big plantations that surround them. Many are owned by Ghana Oil Palm Development Company. They may even be sold as sustainable or deforestation-free. But there's a big difference in how they treat the land. And for Safiano, it's clear. Those distant corporate owners can afford to degrade the soil because they aren't connected to the land. For smallholder farmers, because the also get their food crops from the same parcels of land to feed their families. They want to also keep it very, you know, uh, fertile and, and sustainable so that they can keep feeding their family. Palm oil is part of feeding families here and not just by providing a steady income. I asked Safianu how this staple crop is used in the communities that grow it. He invites me to imagine that I've come to visit. If I were staying there, you'd have to take some food with palm oil in it because of the how nutritious it is and how it improves your eyesight. So palm palm nuts is actually used for palm nut soup, and this is this is used to prepare a, a meal called fufu. So fufu is uh, made from uh, boiled cassava. You know cassava, right? Manioc. Yeah. Yeah. So you boil, peel it. When when you pick the tuber from the farm, it's they are peeled, uh, and then boiled. After boiling, it's pounded. It's you know it's very starchy, so it's pounded and then served with palm palm nut soup or with light soup. But most most people would prefer the palm nut soup because it's heavy and for people who are engaging laborious work and apart from fufu with palm nut soup you can eat it also with rice just boiled rice and i also take that a lot in my home together with my family uh, there's also plantain that can be boiled and then merged once merged you mix it with some palm oil to give it some nice taste and you know flavor it's and it tastes really really good lots lots of people would also use palm oil for what we call red red and it's served in restaurants in ghana most restaurants in ghana red red so it's beans boiled beans mixed with gari and then palm oil 
and you can use it to also fry plantains and then serve it together with the red red and it's really really delicious and nutritious it's one of uh the foods that doc medical doctors will recommend for people who are vegetarians i absolutely know what i need to eat if i ever go to ghana traditionally they are also used for pouring libation so you would they would normally also mash it with plantain and then just use it to pour libation to pacify the gods so it tells you how valuable the oil palm tree is to people locally especially in, in west africa my mouth is watering hearing those descriptions and that brings me back to our main conversation palm oil i don't know about you but my mouth doesn't usually water at the mention of palm oil when i read the back of a cheap chocolate bar or a bag of chips and that's what our industrial food system has done to palm oil it has taken this special crop that safiano describes falling in love with and turned it into a destructive commodity it has taken this household staple and turned it into just another industrial additive from something that can support the livelihoods of small-scale farmers families and crabs to something that is destroying the forest homes of people and animals and our planet and all for the sake of profit for these big food companies it doesn't have to be this way so what would fair sustainable palm oil production look like to you for me a fair sustainable palm oil production would be palm oil or yeah crude palm oil that was pro- produced from smallholder fields that's uh had the environment in mind actually during the entire process processes of its cultivation you would want to embark on uh, production practices that protect the soil that protects the farmer who crops it you know and 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 something that gives the farmer ultimately an income to survive you'd uh, i would consider palm oil production that is fair and sustainable to be something that all people involved throughout the production processes are compensated fairly and then to compensate workers fairly you ensure the and above the minimum wage in the country farm workers are also you know given the opportunity to earn similarly and for farmers you ensure uh, all the support services they need uh, are, are provided to them to access international markets and then also uh, ensure they get organic premiums and also fair trade premiums comes back to developing their communities and then improving their living standards and those of their family and their you know community members there's such a contrast here between what safianu just described and the industrial model that robin talked about these diverse landscapes that the small scale farmers he works with are managing they're rich not just with palm trees but mangoes avocados and crabs i'm not over that part yet I could leave you with the simplistic picture of a palm oil that's crab friendly versus one that's killing orangutans. But as vivid as that visual is, it's not the whole story. Nestle has the power to decide to make their next campaign a crab friendly palm oil if they want to, because that's exactly the sort of thing that they and all these other big food companies are good at. Dreaming up a new ad campaign to redefine sustainability and greenwash over their whole exploitative model. 
Back in our first episode, Fortine and Franck, who work with cocoa farmers in Côte d'Ivoire, call it as it is. By dropping Fairtrade certification, Nestle is just doing the same thing again. Redefining what is ethical and plastering their supply chains over with more marketing and more empty commitments. Over and over again in all these conversations, we see how ready Nestle is to make all sorts of pledges that make for very nice marketing. But the actual story remains the same. Nestle is a massive corporation, the biggest food company in the world by their own claims. They have the means to make a whole lot of change across all their supply chains. But instead, they continue to put short-term profits before just about everything else. And in this episode, we've heard just how high the stakes are. We're talking about a planet that remains livable for all of us. In this series, we've been hearing from people who are building an alternative vision for our food and farming systems. The idea that we could have this chocolate that brings so much joy to so many of us without exploiting the people who grow and make this crop possible, without destroying forests and making our planet uninhabitable. That's it for this time. Thanks so much for joining us on For a Better World. Be sure to subscribe to listen to our next episode where we'll wrap up this series. We'll reflect on the little fair trade label that went on a Kit Kat bar and the big question of just what it would take to make this vision for a more fair, sustainable chocolate bar, not just something that gets marketed to us, but a world that we can actually live in every day. You've been listening to For a Better World, a podcast by Fairworld Project. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Head to our website, fairworldproject.org, to sign up for our newsletter. It's the best way to stay in the loop with our work and take action to support the movements you hear about on this show. Fairwell Project is a nonprofit organization, and we rely on donations to keep our work going. If you liked what you heard or learned something new, consider becoming a monthly donor. Your contribution will help us continue to bring you stories from around the globe. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay up to date between episodes. For a Better World is made possible by our small but mighty team. Our show is edited by Stephanie DeLeon-Seek. Jenica Cadell is our producer. Anna Canning is our scriptwriter. Our storytellers are Ryan Zinn and Anna Canning. Our music was composed by Mark Robertson. And I'm your host and executive director of Fairwell Project, Dana Geffner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>